Does the name John Allen Muhammad ring a bell for you? What about Lee Boyd Malvo? Does that ring a bell for you? They might not, and there's a part of me that hopes they don't. There's a big part of me that hopes you have forgotten both of their names. But even if you don't remember them, you probably remember the nefarious title that they carried back in 2002. They were known together as the Beltway Sniper in Washington, D.C., credited with killing 10 people. Their names really are a blip on the screen, but what they did and the lives that they took, people remember today. So that's why I say I kind of hope you don't even remember their names. But there is one out of their story, one name, that I hope you do remember. That's Ron Lance. Anybody remember Ron Lance? If you don't, hopefully you will. Every day after this, Ron Lance played an instrumental role in the capture of both of those men. He played an instrumental role in putting a stop to the reign of terror that they had on the eastern seaboard. I was going to tell you his story, but I can't do it any justice. He tells it better than I do. So let me just share it with you. Traffic on I-70 wasn't too bad. I should have been enjoying myself that day in October, sitting up in the cab of my 18-wheeler, cruising through the Pennsylvania hills. 36 years as a trucker, and I still got a kick out of my rig. Bass Transportation bought this 600-horsepower tractor in 2000. I was the only one who drove it. If traffic held steady, I would make my usual run right on schedule, hauling a tanker of building compound from Ohio to Delaware, then deadheading back to my home in Ludlow, Kentucky. But I didn't make the run on time that day for the same reason I wasn't enjoying the trip, the Beltway Sniper. The words hammered in my head, eight dead and two wounded already, and it didn't look like there'd be an end to it. At any truck stop in the D.C. area, all we talked about was the white van the police were looking for. It weighed on me that this guy was out there ready to kill again. I knew what it was like to lose someone you love. Five years earlier, my wife Ruth and I had lost our only son, Ron, to multiple sclerosis. It was a pretty October day just like this one when he died. I knew when I got to the nursing home that something was up because there was a lot of hollering down the hall. What's going on, I asked. It's your son, Mr. Lance, a nurse said. I hurried to Ron's room. There was our boy sitting on the edge of his bed, hands raised over his head, praising the Lord. For more than a year, he hadn't been able to sit up on his own. I'm leaving here, Ron said. Someone's coming through that door tonight to take me home. Then he looked at me real hard. Dad, I don't want to be up in heaven waiting for you and you don't make it. It wasn't the first time he'd brought up the subject. My parents raised me in the faith, but somehow I drifted away. I want you to go over to my church right now, Ron went on. Find my pastor and give your life to the Lord. Well, that's exactly what I did. Afterward, I went back to the nursing home and told Ron, I'm glad I had the chance because somebody did come for my boy that night and take him home. My life turned around. I got active in church. I headed the men's fellowship, led retreats, was on the Sunday school board. I'd never start a run without kneeling by my bed at the rear of the cab and asking God to watch over Ruth. After the sniper shot his first victims, I'd been praying about that too, that someone would stop this killing spree. It had gone on for 12 days already. 
Around 7 p.m. when I was about an hour and a half out of Wilmington, Delaware, the usual report came on the radio. Nothing new on the sniper. All they knew was that a white van might be involved. I got to thinking about what I'd learned at church, how a bunch of people praying together can be more powerful than a person praying alone. What if I get on my CB, see if a few drivers want to pull off the road with me and pray about this? I pressed the button on my microphone and said that if anyone wanted to pray about the sniper, he could meet me in half an hour at the eastbound 66-mile marker rest area. A trucker answered right away, then another, then another. They'd be there. I hadn't gone five miles before a line of trucks formed, some coming up from behind, others up ahead slowing down to join us. The line stretched for miles. It was getting dark when we pulled into the rest area. There must have been 50 rigs there. We all got out of our cabs and stood in a circle holding hands, 60 or 70 of us, including some wives and children. Let's pray, I said. Anyone who feels like it can start. Well, the first one to speak up was a kid, maybe 10 years old, standing just to my left. The boy bowed his head. Our Father who art in heaven. We went around the circle, some folks using their own words, others using phrases from the Lord's Prayer. It seemed to me there was a special meaning where it says, Deliver us from evil. The last person finished, we had prayed for 59 minutes, all those truckers adding an hour to their busy schedules. Ten days later, October 23rd, I was making my Ohio to Delaware run again. There'd been another killing, and the sniper was no nearer to being caught. Right from the start, there was something different about my trip. In the first place, it was a Wednesday. I normally made my runs Tuesdays and Thursdays. But there was a delay at the loading dock, so I told my pastor I'd have to miss our Wednesday night prayer meeting. We'll be praying for you, he said. The second thing that happened, I was stopped by the cops. Once was rare for me. This trip I was pulled over three times. Not for very long, they were just checking papers, but it made me late getting into Wilmington. The next strange thing, instead of catching a few hours of sleep, I headed back west as soon as my cargo was offloaded around 11 p.m. That wasn't like me at all. I knew too many sad stories when a driver didn't get enough sleep. It was like I had an appointment, like I couldn't sleep even if I tried. At midnight, the truck and bozo show came on the air, a music and call-in program a lot of truckers listened to. There was news in the sniper case. There were two snipers, not one, and police now believe the guys were driving a blue 1990 Chevrolet Caprice with New Jersey plates, license number NDA21Z, not the white van we had all been looking for. I wrote down the tag number. Just before 1 a.m., I reached the rest stop at the 39-mile marker near Myersville, Maryland, only a few miles from where so many of us had made a circle and prayed. Westbound on I-70, this was the only rest area between Baltimore and Breezewood with a men's room. I wasn't going to pass that by. And here was the last weird thing about that trip. The truck aisles were full. I'd never seen so many rigs at that stop. Drivers asleep. Only thing I could do was swing around to the car section. I wouldn't be long. Climbing down from my cab, I noticed a car in the no parking zone. The light over the men's room door was shining on it. A blue Chevrolet Caprice. There must be hundreds of blue Caprices out there. I looked closer. Two men, one slumped over the wheel asleep. Beyond the men's room was a row of bushes. I crept behind them and squinted to make out the license number. Jersey plates. N-D-A-2-1-Z. 
Quiet as I could, I climbed back in my rig. Better not use the CB in case those guys have one. I punched 911 on my cell phone. I'm at the Myersville rest stop. There's a blue Chevrolet Caprice here, Jersey license, NDA-21Z. The operator asked me to hold. In a minute, she came back with instructions. Wait there. Don't let them see you. Block the exit with your truck if you can. If an 18-wheeler can tiptoe, that's what mine did. (laughs) I blocked as much of the exit ramp as I could, but there was still room for a car to get by. Five minutes passed. Only one other driver was ready to roll. As soon as I told him what was happening, he pulled his rig alongside mine, sealing off the exit. I sat in my cab, looking out the side mirrors at the blue Caprice, expecting a shootout, thinking I ought to be scared and wondering why I wasn't. Five minutes passed. I was afraid another truck or car would drive up and honk for us to move it, waking the suspects, but no one stirred. The cops slid up so quiet I didn't know they were there until suddenly it was like the 4th of July with flash grenades lighting up the night to stun the two men. FBI agents, state troopers, officers from the sheriff's department swarmed the rest stop. Searchlights, breaking glass, shouts, the thump of helicopters, SWAT teams in night vision goggles running low, crouching, guns drawn. Next thing I knew, the two men were being led away. The police took down names and addresses of everyone who had been at the rest area. It was two and a half hours before we were free to go. Since I'd been blocking the exit, I was the first one out. Five miles down the road, I started shaking so bad I could hardly hold the wheel. Then I got to thinking about all the unusual things that had to happen for me to be at that place at that time and about my friends at church praying for me that same evening. And I couldn't help thinking about my son, Ron, who led me to that church. I looked in my rearview mirror at the line of trucks behind me and remembered leading another line of semis 10 days earlier. I remembered the circle of truckers and their families holding hands, voices joined together to pray, deliver us from evil. That's why I hope you remember Ron Lance's story. It's so much better than the other two guys. And it's God's story. There's a part of it when we hear that that would force us to believe that that was a miracle that had happened. And it's an easy jump for us to get there, to listen to all of those details and believe that that was a miracle. But if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you've heard us define miracles this way. Miracles happen when God breaks through the natural realm to do the supernatural to draw people closer to him. Everything that happened in Ron's story happened in the natural realm. And it happened as a direct result of answered prayers. Everything that happened, every aspect of it, from the rest area to the truckers that had joined together, even those that had filled up the truck area so that Ron had to park in a different place, all of the people that were praying back at his church, as he would say, his son sending him to that church in the first place, all of that happened in the natural realm to bring about this cool cool story. It wasn't miraculous. It was answered prayer. That's what was at work here. There is a difference between miracles and answered prayers, and Ron Lance's story shows us the power of answered prayer. It is as if the prayers were the cause and God's answer was the effect. 
Let me say that again. It was if prayer was the cause and God's answer was the effect. Now, you may not be able to wrap your head around that right now, so let me see if I can boil that down, make it a little easier to understand. It's the same thing that happens when we walk into a room and flip a light switch. Flipping the light switch is the cause. Light flooding the room is the effect. Or think about it like this. Same thing happens when you turn the knob on a faucet and water fills a sink. Turning the knob is the cause. Water filling the sink, well, that's the effect. Or maybe this will resonate with you. Same thing happens when an expert master carpenter swings a hammer and hits a nail on the head and the nail is perfectly sunk into the wood. Same thing. Swinging the hammer was the cause. The sinking of the nail is the effect. It's the exact same thing. Prayer was the cause. The answered prayer was the effect. All the way back to the Egyptian dynasty, there are the 12 laws of nature. A number of people subscribe to those 12 laws. One of them is the law of cause and effect. If you've never studied it, don't know what it is, here's a simple definition. The law of cause and effect says that there is a reason for everything that happens. For every effect, there is a cause, whether we know what it is or not. Now, if you subscribe to the 12 laws, no problem with that. If you don't subscribe to the 12 laws, no problem with that. But in the particular application that we're talking about in cause and effect, I would say that we can answer a lot of the questions that exist in the realm of cause and effect within Christianity. Prayer is the cause. God's answer is the effect. Now, let's all say that together. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Prayer is the cause. God's answer is the effect. There is a difference in the natural realm from the miraculous realm. In the natural realm, where God doesn't have to break any of the laws of nature, God is moving all the time. He is moving all the time. And we have the privilege of seeing that. The truth is, God has orchestrated millions of things, literally millions of things, to happen in the natural realm as a direct result of prayer. That's why James, when he would make a statement like this, was so pointed in it, and we have to understand it. James chapter 4, verse 2, listen to this. You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Pray. Pray is what James, the half-brother of Jesus, is teaching. You pray because God is going to move. Your prayer is the cause. God's answer is the effect. The disciples knew that. And they asked Jesus to help make them better at praying. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Join me in. Luke chapter 11, will you? Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Familiar passage. You can find a parallel passage to it in the Gospel of Matthew. This is Luke's telling of this. And what he's telling is what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. 
Now let's hold on in this verse for just a second. There is a lot that was just revealed to us, starting with this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. Jesus was God. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was both man and God, human and divine. And he was praying in a certain place. Jesus understood the power of prayer. If you want a really interesting Bible study sometime, choose to go through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and look for every place that Jesus is praying. You will be stunned by the number of times you will find him on his knees praying. Let me show you just a few examples this morning. In fact, we'll put them up on the screen for you so that you can see these. Here's just a few examples from Luke's gospel, just one gospel of Jesus praying. Let's walk through them together just so you can see it for yourself. The first one, Jesus prayed during major life events. This is found in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. During a major event in his life, his baptism, the Bible says Jesus was praying afterwards. There's the cause. And the heavens were opened, and God spoke. That was the effect, cause and effect. Jesus' prayer was the cause. God speaking from heaven was the effect. And all of that happened during a major life event. Jesus prayed when he had to make major serious decisions, just like we should. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And then the Bible goes on to tell us who all twelve of them were. Jesus had a major decision to make. This is how we arrived at who the apostles were. This is how Jesus arrived at who the apostles were. Of all of the people known as the disciples that came to him, Jesus was praying, and not just a small prayer, he prayed all night long that God would help him determine who the twelve should be. And after that all-night prayer session, the twelve apostles were chosen. Jesus prayed in the midst of major decisions. So if he would do that, shouldn't we? Jesus' prayer all night long was the cause The effect were the 12 apostles. So if anybody asks you how those 12 were ever chosen, there's the answer. Jesus prayed all night long and chose all 12 of them. Little sub-point in that, that includes Judas. Jesus prayed when stress was rising in his life. You ever had stress rise in your life? Jesus did, and he chose to pray. This is Luke chapter 5, verse 12. Well, he, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. 
But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Listen to this. But he would withdraw to a desolate place to pray. That's what Jesus would do. When things were getting stressful, when people were making all kinds of demands on him, Jesus prayed in the midst of stressful situations. He did the same thing when he had to take risks, when Jesus had to take risks. You might think to yourself, what are you talking about Jesus taking risks? He was God and man. There was never a risk. He always knew the outcome. (coughs) Well, don't forget, he was both God and man. So I'll show you one of those times. (coughs) First, I'm going to make this go away. (coughs) Luke chapter 9. Tina, come up here and help me. You can go right over here. Luke chapter 9, verse 18 through 20. Now it happened that as he was praying (coughs) alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus, stay right there. Jesus in his humanity was taking a huge, huge risk. That's really what was happening here. It was a huge risk. He didn't know for sure in his humanity that Peter would answer the way he did. Same thing happens for us when we've been sharing the gospel and what we believe with somebody and then we confront them with the moment to make a decision. There's a big question. Will they actually do it? That's a risk. Anytime you share the gospel, there's a risk. And there are multiple other risks that we take. So prayer is the right move because prayer is the cause. And if we expect God to answer the effect, we better make sure that we're faithful with our part of it, the cause. Then there are other things that happened where Jesus prayed, like when people needed to have their eyes open that they might understand. We're still in Luke chapter 9. Pick up in verse 28. Tina, read for us through verse 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with them Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Thank you very much. We know that is the transfiguration. Transfiguration was the place where the divine and the human intersected in Jesus' life. 
The transfiguration was necessary not for Jesus, but for the disciples, particularly Peter, James, and John. They needed their faith to be strengthened. So Jesus took them up on that mountain with him. He involved them in the midst of it because their eyes needed to be opened. They needed to understand a little bit more. So prayer was the cause of that understanding. The effect came when God spoke from heaven and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Do what he says. Their faith was strengthened. Cause and effect. We see it all the way through scripture. And even Jesus would seek it. That's why he was praying. In Luke chapter 11, when he was praying in a certain place, he was praying for an effect that his disciples would understand something like prayer. So let's go back to Luke chapter 11, verse 1. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Again, there's a lot in just that one statement, so let's start with the easiest part. What is this about John teaching his disciples? That's John the Baptist. Now, we know John the Baptist as the last of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus himself would refer to him as the greatest of the prophets. We know if we've read his story that his conception and birth was miraculous in and of itself. He was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was ever born. Even in the womb, John the Baptist had the Holy Spirit. And then he came and he preached and he introduced who Jesus was. And he had disciples. John, in the midst of his miraculous life, taught them how to pray because they had seen him praying. John prayed. Even with everything that he had going for him, everything that he had in his life, John chose to pray. And his disciples said, teach us more about that. Now here are Jesus' disciples saying, please do for us the same thing. Teach us to pray the way John taught his disciples. Teach us the same thing. Now if you really want to look closely at that request, then you will discover this. They did not say, Lord, help us to preach. They did not say, make us great orators and teachers. They did not say, Lord, help us perform more miracles and greater signs. They didn't say any of that. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Because they'd seen Jesus praying so often. And they saw the effects of those prayers. So they wanted to know how to pray. They wanted to understand the power of it. In three decades of ministry, I still see the exact same thing happening. More than anything else, people want to know how to pray. If I took all of the questions that I've been asked about Scripture and walking with God, put them all together, I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of five to six times people ask about prayer to every other question. Dini, would you say that you found the the same type of a, a thing going on? People want to know about praying. They want to know how to pray. They want to understand the effects of prayer because prayer is the cause and God's answer is the effect. So how do I tap into that? That's what the disciples were asking. Teach us how to pray. And watch what Jesus does. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. 
Now, we know that as the Lord's Prayer, but I want you to dial in really close for the next 90 seconds. If you don't hear anything else, you take this with you. If you have thrown away everything else I've said, do not throw this away. You need to know this. We call this the Lord's Prayer, not because Jesus prayed it, but because Jesus taught it. Now, I want to say that one more time. If you're a note taker, write this down. We call this the Lord's Prayer, not because Jesus prayed it, but because Jesus taught it. And here's what I mean by that. If we believe that Jesus prayed this prayer, then we run headlong into a major doctrinal problem. It is found in verse 4. Here it is again. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Jesus never sinned. So Jesus was not praying this prayer. If Jesus was praying this prayer and we run right into this doctrinal problem, it will lead us to a place where we have to question his divinity where we have to question whether he was sinless or not, whether we have to question whether he was the perfect high priest. There are so many doctrinal problems in believing that Jesus prayed this prayer that unraveling them is nearly impossible. So always hold on to the fact that this is called the Lord's Prayer because he taught it. He was teaching a pattern of prayer. He wasn't saying, this is the way I pray and therefore you should always pray this. He was just giving us a pattern. And in Luke's gospel, that pattern can be broken down into two things. He was teaching us the value of relationship and responsibility. Those were the two things that he wants us to grab out of this. Relationship and responsibility. Let's start with the relationship part of it. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. He will go on to explain that, and we'll look at it briefly in just a minute. But you have to know that when we address God as Father, we are addressing him as a child would address our fathers. And that opens up the door to his kingdom different than anything else ever could. By addressing him as father, understanding the relationship, then the cause and effect of prayer makes sense. If we don't understand the relationship, the cause and effect will never make sense. But to understand the relationship smooths out a lot of questions that we would have. God is responding to us as a father responds to his children. It's exactly like that. Jesus wanted us to know, and Luke made sure he grabbed hold of it, that we have a relationship with God different than anyone ever had prior to Jesus coming to this earth. And that changes everything, including our prayer life. In the realm of responsibility, Jesus is teaching us that there are two parts to that as well. Number one, Our prayers have to be asked in such a way that we are honoring the kingdom of God. And number two, they have to be asked in such a way that we are seeking his will. If we are praying that our lives will honor the kingdom and that we can live right in the middle of God's will, then we are setting ourselves up to understand another great ministry or ministry, mystery in the Bible that I would refer to as the whatever clause. 
It is the whatever clause, and it is particularly associated with prayer. Let's go to the Gospel of John together. John chapter 14, verse 13. Once again, if you're a note taker, highlighter, underliner, somebody that marks up your Bible, get ready to mark up one word in John chapter 14. Highlight it, underline it, draw arrows into the margin, whatever you have to do, this is crazy important. John 14, verse 13. Whatever. There's the whatever clause as it is starting to unravel for us. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. For the longest time, we would read that verse out of context, and out of context means out of the whole of the New Testament, and believe that whatever we ask of God, He will give to us. That turns God into a genie and prayer into the rubbing of the bottle. That's all that is. Whatever I ask of God, God will give to me. And that is selfishly motivated at its core. Well, the whatever clause teaches us that if we are praying that we will honor God's kingdom on this earth and that we will be used in God's will, then the whatever kicks in. We can expect that whatever we ask in those two realms, that we will honor God's kingdom and live in His will, being used by Him, sets it up for us to receive the promise. But if all we're asking for are selfishly motivated things, we're probably going to be disappointed. And a lot of people have been in their prayer life. But if we ask within the whatever clause, utilizing the two motivations, responsibilities then God's ready to respond, at which time we can completely understand. Are you ready for this? Prayer is the cause, and God's answer is the effect. And when that answer, that effect, takes root in our life, it can look miraculous, absolutely miraculous. But it's really God moving within the natural realm as a result of our prayers, The things that we have asked within the relationship, understanding the responsibility to arrive at the right place where God opens up heaven and responds in the natural realm. Man, that's pretty exciting. That's pretty exciting. When we started this discussion weeks ago, I said that there was a difference between miracles and answered prayer. And there is. But we don't need to believe that one is better than the other. One just happens in the realm of the supernatural. The other happens in the realm of the natural. And really, the one that happens within the realm of the natural, that's a lot more frequent. And that's the one that involves us. Because prayer is the cause, God's answer is the effect. Now, let me make sure that we're all together on this. Just say it with me. Prayer is the cause, God's answer is the effect. I thank you, I had to do that twice in first service because only four people were with me in first service. That was it. It's pretty cool when we understand that. And that's what the disciples, the apostles wanted to understand when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They wanted to understand cause and effect because they wanted the effect. And we should as well. It requires the relationship and an understanding of the responsibility and then the whatever clause is opened up to us. Wow. And we get to see the power of God. Sometimes we get to be used in the power of God. That's exciting. 
That is exciting. And it realigns everything within us. Doesn't get much better than that. Miracles happen. There is no question that miracles happen. You've heard me over the course of four, five, six weeks talking about the fact that miracles happen. And I'm glad that God breaks through the natural realm to do the supernatural. I really am. And I've been privileged to see that happen. And I know that there's more of it coming. But know this, miracles are rare. They are rare. Answered prayer happens all the time. Answered prayer happens daily. The effect of prayer happens daily because God loves us, because God is a father to us. Jesus himself would explain it this way in Luke chapter 11. Just a few verses down, verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? One of the greatest effects of prayer is the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. Not just the presence, but the power of the Holy Spirit. Because God loves us as a father loves his children, he wants us to have all of the Spirit. Access to everything the Holy Spirit has to offer. And he makes it happen. He makes it happen. But prayer is the cause of getting to see that. So do what James says. Pray. Do what Jesus says. Pray. Follow through with what the disciples were asking of Jesus. Learn how to pray. But know this. It isn't a formula. It's not a specific prayer to use in specific situations. Learning how to pray is simply learning the relationship you have with God and talking to Him. And once you have figured that out, then you will know and never question because you will see repeatedly that, here we go, prayer is the cause and God's answer is the effect. Let's do it one more time. Prayer is the cause and God's answer is the effect. Wow. Happens in the natural realm where we live. Watch for it.